Hello, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Hope for Healthcare with Dr. Katie Cole in partnership with ICD Healthcare Network. Dr. Katie Cole is a holistic physician, organizational well-being consultant, and change agent, working with industry leaders and proven strategies to heal our national healthcare system and our culture of medicine. Stay tuned to hear today's speaker. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Hope for Healthcare. Today, I have a very special guest that I is actually a really good friend and colleague of mine, Dr. Sadie Alicio. She is a primary care physician in the Boston VA healthcare system, a clinical instructor of medicine at Harvard Medical School, an adjunct instructor of medicine at the Boston University School of Medicine. Dr. Alicio is a nationally recognized expert in the field of trauma-informed care, which is an organizational framework for supporting survivors of various forms of trauma. Dr. Alicio's award-winning curriculum on trauma-informed physical examination is now being taught in medical schools and healthcare institutions across the country. Last year, Dr. Alicio worked with VA colleagues to publish a framework for trauma-informed telehealth. She enjoys building platforms for educating healthcare professionals in trauma-informed practices. Let's give a warm welcome to Dr. Sadie Alicio. Well, hello, uh, Dr. Sadie Alicio. It is fabulous to have you here today on the podcast. Thank you so much. Uh... Katie Cole. It's lovely to be here. Well, you know, Sadie, I had the opportunity to meet you at the National Burnout Symposium recently in New York in June, and it was just such a great connection. And I really, you actually provided a workshop on trauma-informed care. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today. Perfect. (laughs) So um, you really have developed an interest in creating a trauma-informed physical examination, as well as trauma-informed care curriculum for medical students. Can you tell our audience a little bit more about that and your journey to create that? Sure, and thanks for asking. I think it would make more sense if I explained how this all happened. So starting from the beginning is great. Um, When I first started a clinical practice, I happened to take a job at the VA. So I work for the Veterans Administration. I'm currently a primary care physician at the Boston VA healthcare system, and many of my patients were trauma exposed, whether it was combat or in childhood. And so that just happened to be the patient population that I began seeing. And I recognized that there were many instances during the physical exam when I was making my patients visibly uncomfortable. For example, I vividly remember swinging my stethoscope off my neck and the patient jumped. I remember approaching a patient for the thyroid exam and they hammered back, right? And so slowly I started adjusting my speech and my behaviors, my body positioning, simply in an effort to set patients at ease because first do no harm, right? So slowly I started teaching these strategies to medical students. And I remember one day a student came up to me after class and asked me, "Um, Dr. Alicio, can you tell me more about your trauma-informed techniques? And I honestly thought she had just made that up on the spot. I had no idea what that was. And so she revealed to me that uh, this is in fact a very well-established framework 
for providing quality care to survivors of various forms of trauma. And I was completely hooked. That was exactly what I was looking for. I was enthralled. It really changed the course of my career. I practically locked myself in my office for a month to read everything that I could and publish trauma-informed care. I needed more. And I then developed a formal framework for what I called a trauma-informed physical exam. I partnered with the medical students to implement that as standard curriculum for all first years at Brown, where I was. I happened to be the course leader of the doctrine course at the time. We studied it, we published it, won an award for it, and now it's being taught at medical schools across the country. Congratulations, Sadie. That's wonderful. And I love that you're sharing the journey that, you know, with a creative process, a lot of times it's you know, we walk into something blind, we're not even aware that it exists. And our medical students are really our biggest teachers. And I love that you shared that, that process of how you created the curriculum. Yes, I, I don't think that I was surprised at all that I was learning something new from a student, because you're right, we learn things all the time from trainees. And that's one of the blessings and values of being in medical education. What was surprising to me is that nobody had bothered to tell me sooner. Why did I not learn about this in my own training? Why was this not part of the curriculum um, to date? And so I know, and probably you would agree, that we have a long way to go in healthcare (laughs) in many ways, Uh, but I'm grateful that this is now becoming a social and academic movement, not only in healthcare, Mm -hmm. but in other sectors of the world. And so we're an exciting, really in in an exciting time in history to make change. Yeah, Sadie, that this is so wonderful. And, you know, I just want to share a quick story with the audience because I remember being a psychiatry resident in training and, you know, it was probably three in the morning and I was doing an admission on a gentleman and I had to do the thyroid exam and I had never been trained to be careful with doing a physical examination, especially with somebody who has paranoia and he had been a veteran, you know, and in combat. And when I put my hands on his neck, even though it was gentle, he actually pinned me against the wall in reaction. And at that point, that's when I started talking with my mentors and we realized that we had to be really careful with physical examinations, but I didn't have the languaging at the time. And I think that if I had had you as my teacher, then <laughs> it would it would have put like a words in the language uh, to, to this concept of being um, really intuitive and perceptive when you interview patients and you take care of each other. So honestly, that's the core of it. Now, um, I think most of us go into healthcare with empathy at heart, with good intentions in mind, but what I've come to understand is that much of this is not inherent. It is a learned skill. Uh, So there are things that you can learn to intentionally do in your communication, whether it's verbal or nonverbal communication. At the same time though, at the end of the day, when I'm in a situation where I really don't know what to do next, with the patient, I just pause, I Mm -hmm. tap into a feeling of compassion, and I know that whatever happens next is going to be okay. That's what works for me. (laughs) It may not work for everybody. We're all on this learning journey together, but I find that when I don't have the specific tools, it is about getting back to compassion. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up, Sadie, because I think as physicians, 
and healthcare clinicians were trained to just, okay, we have five, seven minutes to do this exam, and this is what we're going to do, and we have to fit all the questions and all the procedures in this examination, and then we need time for that. We're just like in kind of robot mode almost, and we're trained that if we don't know the answer to something that we need to figure it out quickly and, and not show any vulnerability. And what you just said is, is part of how we're trying to transform our healthcare system where we can actually pause, take a break, reassess, um, and hold a space for the patient. Cause maybe we don't know what to do next because the patient is either getting triggered by something we said or did, or, is trying to find the languaging to tell us what's going on. Yeah, and that's beautiful. We need to allow for time and space for natural interactions to take their course. <laughs> I think that the pressures are probably even higher for trainees, specifically residents. And because of the hierarchical nature and you know traditional um, structure of academic medicine, there is a fierce pressure for residents to perform and to check, check off all of the boxes for their H&P before they go present to their team and then be evaluated and graded, perhaps reprimanded for the things they did not complete or complete accurately. And so I do believe that of all of the things that I do as an internist, the physical exam has the greatest potential to harm. And we often think about informed consent perhaps for a procedure, perhaps for a surgery. We should also get informed consent for exams. Um, so Sadie, I, you know, I'm just curious for our audience, if there are any particular techniques that you have identified with your team as being the most impactful in terms of trauma-informed physical examination. Sure. Um, perhaps I'll give an example and then I can lead you through a basic framework for a trauma-informed physical exam. A key example that we mentioned earlier is the thyroid exam. For generations, doctors have been trained to stand directly behind the patient with the fingers fully wrapped around the neck and the thumbs in the back. So they're not able to see me, what I'm doing, why, and it can simulate strangulation. So for individuals, perhaps who even have not been choked in the past, this can be unnerving. So why not stand at the patient's side in their peripheral view with the fingers fully extended on the neck having told the patient what you're about to do mm -hmm. and why. So that's an example of a trauma-informed approach to the thyroid exam. If that side approach doesn't work for you, that's fine. You can perhaps do an anterior approach or at least explain to the patient so that they're partnering with you for the exam. The primary purpose of an exam is to gather data. So you don't wanna do anything that compromises that, but this is just an opportunity to pause and ensure that our language and behaviors are coming across the right way to our patients. Mm -hmm. So thinking about a framework now for a trauma-informed exam, we can break it down into three portions before, during, and after the exam. So before the exam, we want to make sure that our nonverbal communication is as it should be. We stand or sit at eye level with the patient, mm -hmm. keep our hands out of pockets, avoid any loud or sudden sounds or movements. We then set an agenda for the exam. I even sometimes name the body parts I'm going to examine and make it standard procedure. This is something we do with all patients when they come in for their annual physical. It's not being done uniquely for them or for no reason. You can identify what, if any, concerns they have before the exam. Sometimes I say, have you ever had difficulty with an exam before? 
ask what you can do to make them more comfortable and potentially offer a chaperone or a support person, a loved one in the room. I don't do that for all of my visits, if it's for wrist pain, for example, but this is simply an opportunity for us to reflect on our approach. This is not a checklist. It doesn't have to be done in sequence. One other comment for the chaperone is that historically, most institutions have mandated the presence of a chaperone for a female patient undergoing a breast, genital, or rectal exam. But the majority of my patients have always been men, and they're the ones who taught me about the impacts of sexual violence. So we just need to think more broadly about this before the exam. Now, during the exam, we need to attend to appropriate draping and patient comfort at all times. An example of that is perhaps the patient moving their own drape and gown and clothing rather than the examiner reaching to do so. Okay. Reduce each exam component that you'll be doing, explain why it's being done for medical reasons, mm -hmm. ask permission before touching the patient, particularly in sensitive areas like the neck, like the abdomen, like the breasts. Um, stay within their eyesight as much as possible while also respecting their personal space. Use simple clinical language, and I can give you a couple examples of that. And you can check in with the patient periodically and as needed simply by asking, hey, how you doing? You're in control of the face. And be efficient um, with the exam. In terms of efficiency, we try to avoid keeping the mouth in an open fixed position for a long time because it can trigger memories of forced oral sex. And that's actually a really important and under-recognized reason for avoidance of routine dental care. Now, after the physical exam, you can thank the patient for helping you perform a thorough exam. They're partners with you in that. You yeah, I like that. <laughs> yes. You can discuss results once they're back in their regular clothes and seated in a comfortable chair of their choice. They don't have to be. That's a good point too. Yes. So many right. times as physicians, we just start talking and going over results while the patient is still not even fully clothed and feeling vulnerable. So that's yes, exactly. And then finally, you can ask the patient, what questions do you have? Rather than saying, do you have any questions? Which suggests mm -hmm. I want you to say no. <laughs> Pause, I turn towards them, eye contact, what questions do you have? It suggests to the patient, I expect you to have questions and I welcome them at this time. Aww. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Sadie, for deep diving into some specific examples of how you teach trauma-informed physical examination and care. I think it really helps our audience get a better understanding of the patient experience. And we know anything that we are doing right now to promote the clinician-patient experience really is helping to resolve burnout in healthcare and, and really helping to heal our national healthcare system. So I believe that what you are doing is a key and necessary part of rewiring our culture of medicine. Thank you so much. It's definitely one important key, and I'm always learning from others in this space, so it's cool to be part of the movement. Well, you know, you also um, do a lot of consulting with organizations and even Brown and Harvard on implementing trauma-informed care um, to help with personal and, and professional resilience. Can you talk a little bit about this? Sure. I think that during the pandemic, I became more interested in how trauma-informed care can be applied to other things other than just the clinician-patient interaction. It became clear to me that we're in 
crisis and that these principles are not just a nice to have, but a must have in mm -hmm. times of crisis. And traditionally, we've been thinking about the word trauma as perhaps a gunshot wound or a motor vehicle collision. We need to start thinking about the definition more broadly, even as clinicians. For example, it can be psychological trauma, sexual trauma, transgenerational trauma, like war, slavery, racism. And this is pervasive throughout. Um, one national study suggested that up to 90% of people living in the US will experience at least one traumatic event in their lifetime. So this is a very common, very human experience. It's mm -hmm. not something that is just what our patients undergo. It's something that all of us come in with. There's another hugely foundational famous study called the ACE study. A-C-E stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences. This was conducted in the 1990s uh, by Dr. Vince Felitti and his team. And so this study showed that at least half of the U.S. population has experienced uh, at least one adverse childhood experience or ACE. And Further research has been done to show that rates of ACEs amongst healthcare professionals mirror rates of the general population. We are not immune from trauma somehow. We're a highly resilient bunch. We've achieved a lot. We're very high functioning, but we're not immune from pain. So we're not. And you know, City, think, oh, sorry, interrupt, but thank you for saying that we are the most resilient population, nurses and doctors, and we also have experienced trauma. And I know through the pandemic, we, in, a, in your website and a lot of the articles that you've published, you mentioned the idea of secondary trauma, where physicians and nurses are being exposed to stories of their own patients, having trauma where I'm a psychiatrist, and that happens to me. And with the pandemic, with losing patients to COVID and all the trauma that was happening, um, I think that the, I would be interested to, to see what the trauma scores are now uh, coming out of the pandemic. Yeah. Yes. And it's not something that we've done a good job assessing. I think that in the past, this is another thing that we've really gone through an evolution for. Initially, when we first started identifying burnout, it was our fault as doctors that we couldn't stand up to the pressure. Mm -hmm. And so after that, fortunately, we had our eyes on the systemic issues that made it difficult to do our jobs effectively. And so there's a lot of interest now and resources invested in addressing electronic health record issues and getting scribes and fixing clinic workflows, et cetera. That's all critical. Perhaps the piece that we're missing here is really diving deep into the origin of clinicians suffering. There's this alphabet soup out there that's kind of difficult to understand. We have compassion fatigue, doctor's disease, mm -hmm. burnout, moral distress, moral injury, moral suffering. We have trauma, that's primary trauma, secondary trauma, vicarious trauma. What are all these words? Yeah. I remember speaking with a colleague of mine, David Kopaz, who is an expert in the moral suffering subject. And he said that no matter what we call it, we do need to treat clinician suffering. So that's, I think, where we need to move next. Absolutely. And, um, you know, when it comes to implementing trauma-informed care, can you talk a little bit about how this could also be a positive influence for the healthcare team and clinicians on the front line? Of course. Um, I was just speaking with someone today who um, mentioned that she 
thinks a lot also about trauma-informed care applications in the workplace, mm -hmm. that one of her colleagues gets very frightened and activated when someone closes a door behind her loudly. Mm. And I think that's a very common practice. We close exam rooms all the time. Oh, Clinic's noise, the noisiest place. Yes. Perhaps a boardroom door, a conference room door. This can happen not only with a doctor and patient in the exam room. This can happen just for daily business operations in the C-suite and throughout a system. So when we're aware of what might be troublesome to another human, we're able to connect in a way that creates more physical and psychological safety so that we can all be present and getting good work done together. Well, you know, that's a really great point, Sadie. And I see how this ties into human factor ergonomics as well, because they talk about building a foundation inside of healthcare that creates psychological safety and well-being. And one of the issues is lighting and noise in the clinic and the hospital setting and um, trying to get rid of the pagers going off, the phones ringing, limiting all of that. And I know that um, there are different organizations out there trying to work on the technical side of things as well to, to improve our, our healthcare environment. Brilliant. And you know, everyone is doing great work here. I think it all has value. And trauma-informed care is just one form of patient-centered care, mm -hmm. one form of person-centered health care. Uh, it just, it, it has a little bit of a, a unique slant. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps what I'd like to share here is the six core principles of a trauma-informed approach. And that's from SAMHSA. SAMHSA is a leader in the field. They're a pioneer in trauma-informed care. So their six, uh, and SAMHSA is the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. So their first principle of any trauma-informed approach is safety. And that's what you're talking about, that unless we establish a background environment of physical, psychological, and emotional safety, we really can't get work done. And this is applicable to anything. If a patient in counseling with you uh, Dr. Cole does not feel safe, you're not going to get very far in that appointment in psychiatry. No, and we have 30 seconds, they say on average, to build a bond and rapport before yeah. we dig deep. We have 30 seconds to establish safety and trust. Well, I'm sure you do a very, very good job. <laughs> but that's very challenging. But it's challenging. We do need to establish safety first. Mm -hmm. The second principle that SAMS has identified for a trauma-informed approach is trustworthiness and transparency. And so we aim to conduct all business operations transparently with the goal of building and maintaining trust in the system. Mm -hmm. It's huge in employee engagement and, and retention, feeling like people have a stake and believe in the system that they're working for. The third principle is peer support. And there's a ton of evidence out there that suggests that patients with mental health concerns benefit greatly from peer support. We just don't do a good job of it in medicine, right? I think that physicians and nurses do need one another to help rise up from burnout, depression, whatever it is we call it, but peer support is crucial. Um, kind of getting together in suffering and in healing to gain and inspire hope. Mm -hmm. The fourth principle is collaboration and mutuality. 
we acknowledge that healing happens in relationships. That is a key, 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 key principle in trauma-informed care. It happens in safe and collaborative relationships. And there's a leveling of the power differential to allow for that to happen. Everybody has a voice in the matter. The fifth principle is empowerment, voice, and choice. We build on employees' strengths because trauma-informed care is a strengths-based approach instead of what's wrong with you, what is strong with you is on the bed. And we support I like that. autonomy. That's Can you just it. say that again, Sadie? Instead of what's wrong with you, what is strong with you? Okay, perfect. I think that's the title of the podcast. What's wrong with you? That's right. I really like that. I really love that rewording. That's great. Another rewording instead of what's wrong with you is what's happened to you, what has happened to you that has affected you in this way. And Oprah's new book that she released with Dr. Bruce Perry is called What Happened to You, firmly rooted in trauma-informed principles. And of course, Dr. Bruce Perry is a world-renowned traumatologist. So, um, And then the sixth principle that SAMHSA's identified is attending to cultural, historical, and gender issues. So for that, we acknowledge that trauma has been passed down in certain populations through mm -hmm. history, for example, in gender and racial minorities. We aim to move past our biases and address those historical traumas. So that's, that's an anchoring framework for applying trauma-informed care to anything. You can have mm -hmm. trauma-informed yoga. There's trauma-informed interior design, trauma-informed leadership, trauma-informed physical exams, of course. It really is um, amazing what you can do. Well, thank you for going into detail about this, the six principles of trauma-informed care and what you, you do a great job, Sadie, of really highlighting how this translates to, um, you know, healing our culture of medicine. And it's really a framework that can translate across the continuum of healthcare. Awesome. Yeah. Um, one thing that I definitely need to bring up before we end today for our audience is that um, you had the privilege of speaking with the 14th Dalai Lama about healing from trauma through Harvard's lifestyle medicine course. And I think that is probably one of the most unique experiences. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yes, absolutely. So that obviously was a light, once in a lifetime experience. It's mind blowing that that actually happened. I remember logging on to Zoom like at 11 p.m. my time because he was <laughs> in India with his team and we were all like, dressed up and ready to go. It was pretty powerful. So there was a small group of students and faculty that had the privilege of speaking uh, via Zoom with uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and he was speaking about compassion. Mm -hmm. And my question to him was, how can we heal ourselves from our own painful past experiences, and how can we help others heal mm -hmm. as well? Mm -hmm. And his response was that compassion is the tool to healing both ourselves and others from trauma, which completely makes sense. He also um, very firmly stated that the brain governs the health of the body and that there are strategies that we can use to facilitate the health of the brain. It, it really is the most important organ. And I think one of the most devastating challenges to the stigma surrounding mental health is that we call it mental health. I remember um, hearing a, a colleague in, in um, the trauma world say, it, it, there's no organ called the mental. This is our brain's health. The brain is a very real, tangible, important organ. And if your brain is not well, it's hard for the rest of you to be well either. Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. 
And I love that his, his um, term for pulling everything together is really about compassion. And it's not just compassion for others, it's compassion for ourselves. And as physicians, we are so hard on ourselves and our own worst critic. <laughs> and I know it's a daily practice of mine to have self-compassion. And I know that, that when I have more self-compassion, I show up for my patients better. I show up for my staff better. That's right. When I'm not thinking I'm a failure today because you know I didn't get this done this morning and I needed to before work and letting that go and then just having grace, then I always have a patient that comes in that's being really self-critical. And by telling that story, I share with my patient, look today, I, I was really hard on myself this morning and I had a course correct. And I wanna give that gift to you today. Oh, yeah. that's beautiful. That's <laughs> I think it's been really revolutionary for me to learn practices of self-regulation. That's not mm-hmm. something that I ever learned in medical school. It wasn't remotely no. <laughs> at the time. And again, medicine has a long way to go in so many ways, but I'm able to perhaps do diaphragmatic breathing or mm-hmm. just some grounding strategies before I knock and enter that patient's room. And that gives me a much greater capacity to approach the person in front of me with compassion, with my full frame of mind, Mm -hmm. all of the tools that I need to help them in their suffering. Mm -hmm. And really one of the most beautiful things that I get the privilege of doing where I work at the VA is seeing new patients, often in their 20s and 30s, who are coming with new symptoms of PTSD and opening their eyes that this is something that their healthy brain is doing in response to an injury and then them saying, wow, so it is a real thing. So I'm not crazy. No, you're not crazy. And we should all be opening our arms and (laughs) and embracing our patients and one another when we're struggling like this. Mm -hmm. Well, and I I really see how trauma-informed care can help break down the barrier and the stigma of mental health treatment. Um, Because one of the terms you used was brain health and body health. And we know that a majority of our serotonin is made in our digestive tract. And so even our digestion can regulate, help regulate or dysregulate our emotions on a daily basis. And so really people struggling with PTSD and depression, it's not just even in the brain, it's in the body as well. And in the body, you're right. Yes. In the book, The Body Keeps the Score, I mean, it talk, goes into detail about that. And so what I really love, Sadie, about you sharing and developing and creating this evidence-based trauma-informed care curriculum is, is that it really does, um, I'm trying to think of the word, but it really does uh, pull together and cohese on a really big level in terms of mind, body, spirit, health. And I just want to thank you for that. Oh thank you so much. I, I think it's, it's clear to me, especially these past two years, that these strategies are not only relevant for healthcare, it's really for employees in any system throughout the world. And I really like SAMHSA's four R's of a trauma-informed organization. Number one is that these organizations realize the widespread impact of trauma. Mm -hmm. They learn to recognize the signs and symptoms in their clients and their staff. They respond by putting trauma-informed measures into practice. And finally, they resist re-traumatization. So I've 
had the blessing of being able to teach workshops on trauma-informed wellness for organizations. And hopefully this is a field that just continues to expand because I think we all stand to benefit from it. We do. Well, Sadie, you've done such a great job in terms of overviewing trauma-informed care and how this really can transform our culture of medicine and healthcare in so many different ways, starting at the front line with clinicians and the patient experience, going to peer support and having providers and clinicians be even more aware of how they are getting triggered on a daily basis with their own trauma, all the way up to leadership training and implementation with, with the C-suite and having, you know, helping them understand more about trauma-informed care. So, so we've reviewed so many different things today. Is there any last thing that you want to leave with our audience? Um, good question. I would say that trauma is far more prevalent than perhaps we have realized before in the past two years have just made addressing trauma and our individual and collective healing far more pressing, mm -hmm. especially in healthcare. We know that trauma-informed care is an established framework. It does have the potential to expand human connection and enhance our resilience personally and professionally in mm -hmm. times of crisis. I mean, that was beautifully said. <laughs> and uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Sadie, for being a guest on our podcast today. And for everyone listening, we're definitely going to be posting Sadie's information. She'll have her own bio page on my website. And the, I'll be posting all of the different articles that we referenced today as well for your um, amusement and for your education. Thank so, you so thank much. You. Thank, you for, thank you for being here today, Sadie. All right. Take care. Be well. <laughs> be well.